Let me pray for this process. Father, I, I ask for wisdom with the word, a wisdom that, that, um, that opens it up. And, uh, and not just not for myself even, a wisdom for all of us, that all together we may grasp how great, how wide and deep is your love. Father, I pray for that, and uh, we ask to see Jesus. Uh, forgive the sins of the one who speaks, for there are many. And uh, forgive all of us. <laughs> There's much, much to be forgiven. So that can all be removed, and we, we, want, it, we want it straight from you. <laughs> if, it, if it's possible for you to, to take control of this man and, and say what you want to say, not what he wants to say. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's, uh, we're here in the book of John, and we introduced John last week. If you weren't here last week, um, you missed us talking about the purposes of John. Uh, okay, now, one of the things I've talked about this week uh, was, I was thinking about this week, and I've experienced every week, and you experience it too, is how do you live in two worlds? Like, how do you live in two worlds? This is something distinctively Christian. Some of you, uh, if you're immigrants, you have some of the experience, I think, of having to live in two worlds in your mind. Do you, do you ever experience that coming from Singapore? Yeah. And yeah, it's like there's a, you're going to experience it coming from Taiwan. You have to, you're forced to think about how you think versus how other people think and translate that. Translate your thoughts, attitudes, dispositions, needs, desires, goals. You have to translate them somehow for that other culture and think in that other culture's terms. So John, John's doing this. John's doing that here in this text. And, but because he's doing it, because he's so culturally attuned at this point, he's a Jew, does not know Greek. This is written in ancient Greek. Doesn't know Greek. But he learned it, wrote this book, wrote John at the end of his life in response to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, uh, the earliest testimonies about this were from a man who knew John was that he wrote it as a spiritual gospel. Those are the words, a spiritual gospel. And then when we read it and as we read it, we're going to see it does not sound like Matthew. And it does not sound at all like Mark. And it is worlds from Luke. And I, I picture, if you will walk with me, at the, at the end of his life, John uh, lived a long, long time. He's the only one of the disciples of Jesus Christ in the first 12. He's the only one who was not violently killed for preaching the gospel. Everybody else was. Everybody else dies. Beheadings, and, uh, arena, and all sorts of terrible things happen. But John doesn't. John lives. And I suspect that John, and it is a good way to read John, John is literally self-consciously reflecting on those first four three Gospels. And I think, I, this is my own bull pet theory, <laughs> that he arranges Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then inserts John, his book right between Luke and Acts, which have the same author. I think he intentionally arranges it. Somebody had to arrange and compile it. And it makes sense to me that he would do it. Because it's a logical place to put John in that sequence. But, but John, John uh, I think, had some concerns about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think he had some concerns. Matthew, very, very good for Jewish folks. Very, very good for Jewish folks, folks who spoke Greek. In fact, maybe originally it was written in Aramaic. That's the tradition of Matthew. And the grammar of the Greek bears it out. Uh, but uh, Mark, journeyman's gospel, uh, immediate, quick, uh, very, uh, very much a, a universal kind of appeal and a, a blow-by-blow, action-filled life of Jesus. Easy to read, easy to digest, easy to portable, to hand out. 
Luke. Now, Luke, I can't read Luke in the Greek. You know why? Because the Greek's so hard. It's terrible. It's just, he's the one that uses tons of subjunctives, and he, he is a masterful Greek writer. He knows Greek. He writes Greek like, uh, like somebody who writes for the New Yorker. He writes beautifully, stylistically. John, it's just different. We're going to talk, we're going to see that it sounds different, and I think it's intentional. Now, out the gate, out the gate, I want to, did anybody have a sense when you read this? And as I've taken this text, and I have taken this text, and I have read through these texts in these first 14 verses, and I, over the years, the last, I've been a minister for 25 years, I have seen people come to saving faith, saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because of these words. But as we always go through them the first time, people are always a little bit like, I'm not quite sure what the heck these 14 verses are about. Anybody have that feeling? Anybody feel a little mystified? Like, I'm not quite sure I'm following. Thank you, Will. I know your hand should go up. And so, uh, but no, we, we, I, I feel like that. You should, if you don't feel like it, you're not paying attention because I feel like that. And I'm the one who's supposed to know what it means. In the beginning was the word. And it, it, I got the sense, and we were in Bible study, uh, Frankie and I, with John and, um, and Reuben this week. And John said something interesting. He said, when you read this, it sounds like you need a decoder ring. You need something to translate, something to make you figure it out. Because who is word? Well, who even has a name like that? And what, who is, is a word a he? And why is a word a person? And what is this eternity stuff? And we're going we're gonna to go in this. We're, we'll go, I think, fruitfully and beautifully. And I think with much encouragement to us. Deep and deep in this text. And even when we go deep into this text, it's going to feel like we're swimming over the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Because it's so deep. <laughs> like, there's so much there. And I have to resist an impulse to swim as deep as possible. But John, John lives in two worlds. And John is sensitive. And he's sensitive about how to bridge those worlds together. And this first sentence is a masterpiece of just that. In order to understand it, in order for us to even grasp it and to think about it, even though John is interested, I think, and very well see very clearly, I think, interested in, uh, in communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to Greek people, uh, you're not Greek. <laughs> so when you read it, it seems more mysterious than ever. You don't have the stuff. And so uh, I want to give you as much as I can. There's, there, there, there are four different uh, groups that he can reach in those first four or five words. In the beginning was the word. And in fact, the language that he's doing, first, right off the, right off the bat, it connects with Hebrew, Hebrew people who spoke, oh, this is not going to work, who spoke uh, Hebrew and with other Hebrew Bibles. And why do I say that? What's the, what's the phrase that would have resonated with uh, your average uh, Jewish boy, Jewish man who grew up hearing his Bible. What's the phrase he would have gone, and his ear would have perked up? What is it? In the beginning. Because that's how the Bible starts. You can have Genesis 1 run one, one right now. And there's the first three words, in the beginning. So there's an immediate connection with straight up Hebrew who know, their, who, know their, uh, who know their Bibles. But there's another group here. It's Greek-speaking Hebrews. You see, there were, there were Hebrews and there were Jews because of the diaspora, because of all the political upheaval that had happened. 
since uh, four centuries before Christ, there were now Jews in, uh, in, this, in their history with synagogues in Egypt, synagogues in Asia Minor. There were synagogues everywhere. And synagogue was a, a Jewish name for a, a gathering place, a church. They couldn't read Hebrew. So along came about 200 BC, somebody wrote uh, a, a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We call it the Septuagint. You're going to hear about it occasionally, the Septuagint. Guess what the exact, guess what John 1.1 looks like when you compare it to the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's identical. And RK. So he's trying, he's not only trying to get Jews who are native speakers who believe in their Bibles, he's also trying to get Jews who are in the diaspora, who are all over the place, by borrowing and using words that they're going to recognize right away. It's in the beginning, it's an RK. That's what we're going to look at in a second. But it gets even better. His word choice itself, his word choices, he uses a word, I get this art marker is just not dark enough. Can you guys see that? It looks like the word arch with an E on the end. Arche is the word, and he used the word logos. And his word usage now is, a, is to connect now with people who have, who have philosophical knowledge, philosophical knowledge in, uh, in ancient Greek. Uh, Greeks, Greeks, were, Greek, Greeks inform all of our philosophical thinking today, still to this day. They were very curious. And one of the things that happened in Athens is they, they developed all this. You, you forgot, you've got all heard Plato and Socrates and, the, and Aristotle, and they're still recognized to this very day to be world-class minds. They were brilliant, brilliant men. But it started before then with Heraclitus and Thales, and, and there was this Greek question, what is everything made of? What's this made of? What is this? What is this chair made of? And somebody said, well, it's made of water. And it's just frozen. And some of you said, no, it's made of earth. And so there's debates. And what's it made of? And what they would say is, we, what is its RK? What is its RK? What makes it what it is? What is its beginning? The word beginning doesn't even catch it. It's what is its firstness? What is its, what is it ultimately? And they, oh, they got all sorts of weird theories. You've heard of like the four elements. And that informs some some weird uh, mystical stuff in the city for some, some, uh, some odd group, fringe groups. So what are the four elements that the ancient Greeks thought were, were real? Water, fire, air, and dirt, earth. Now, have you ever heard the word quintessence? The quintessence of something? The quintessence of something is it's is it super, it's, it's the word for what captures it. It's quintessence. Well, that just means the fifth element. Not to be confused with the movie. It's just the fifth element. What's the, what's the part that makes all the parts make sense? What's the, that's the RK. And it was, it was alive. There were whole schools just dedicated. And even a common man would know RK, RK is ultimate questions. Ultimate questions. But even more beautifully, even more beautifully, um, and finally, the final group that he's targeting here and he's connecting with is um, by, particularly by this logos word. Because there was one Greek Jew, there was one Greek Jew living down in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and he took the Bible's concepts and tried to 
marry them to the Greek concepts. He had an ambitious project. And what he did is he took this Logos idea, the Archa idea, and he tried to say, oh, that's in the Bible, isn't it? And he took this, uh, if you go to uh, Proverbs 7, you'll read some of the best poetry in the Old Testament. It's very, very fine poetry where wisdom is personified. Sophia, wisdom. And he was trying to say, he tried to go back to the Greek idea of wisdom and the, or the, and, and the, biblical, and the, Jewish, <laughs> the Jewish idea of wisdom and the Greek idea of wisdom and combine them. And uh, Logos for him then was this inner principle that God uses to organize the world. You could even, in his system, you could translate Logos logic. Does that make sense? It's the inner principle, the logic. That's by the logic is where we get the word, we get that word from the word what? Logos, the same word. Now, arche, we, we, we use in our language all the time, arch enemy, archetype. Uh, are, uh, there's a bunch of arch words, archaeology. They're all about the primary, like the one that's foundational. The, who's your arch enemy? It's the, it's the one enemy that is a, trumps them all. So, um, so he has in mind, uh, your regular Hebrew reads his Bible, Greek Hebrew reads his Bible, philosophical Jews who are looking for the ultimate principles of arche and logos, and finally, even Greek Jews who are philosophical. That's how, so he does, in a few words here, in a beautiful, he marries, and he works at bringing together language and ideas that are completely foreign. Completely foreign to one another. I think that's some of the best news I've ever heard in San Francisco. I'm, I'm serious. What I'm gonna claim here is that John is in, engaged in a project for which you are being recruited. It is a project and an attempt to constantly speak and describe the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in a language that anybody can understand or everybody can understand. And I think that is what we need to be, to be about. And it's that that I can get excited about. John I see, I can almost hear the hunger in his words. Realized that there was this compelling need to take the truths of what we believe and translate them. Not just by words, but translate them as ideas. Does that make sense? Like, it's one word for word, it's not enough. Translate ideas. Because every culture is asking, what's our RK? <laughs> and every culture it asks, what, what makes everything make sense in this world? Every culture is asking questions like this. And if we can discover, I'm going to think we can find out how to preach, the, how we can share the gospel here. How can we tell people about Jesus? And uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna scrape into that a little bit today. Not as much as I even want. I want to talk so much more about this. I want to dwell on this my whole life and think. Maybe when I'm 90, I'll finally be able to write something about it like John did. <laughs> so we have this immediately recognizable sound bite connecting to Jews, a prepositional phrase in the beginning that connects to Greek-speaking Jews, words that appeal to Greek philosophy, and finally to Greeks who are Jews doing philosophy. Okay, what do we learn out of these four words then? Oh, so it's five words in Greek. Um, this is really bad. I, I need, I'm sorry, I don't have darker markers. Uh, and I was, gonna, I was planning to write today because of the complexities of 
un unpacking some of the syntax. But let's say we're going to take these two words, arche and logos, and in the beginning was the word. And I guess if we're going to start in this great project of making the gospel intelligible, we have to start where John starts. So where's John starting? An unshakable conviction that God has spoken in the world, and we have the words of God. He has no doubt. In fact, I will tell you, I suspect there were people who heard this book and got angry immediately. You know why? You know if somebody happens to start their book, and it's not fiction, and this is not fiction, and they start their book exactly in the same words as another book, what are they saying about their book? <coughs> It could be replacing the previous book. It's certainly at least equal to the previous book. Or it could be a refutation of the previous book. Or it could be a continuation of the previous book. And you know what? This is all those things in some sense. Because things have changed since that first place. So there is some contrast. But it's also, he's saying, I'm in continuity. And I want you to hear this. People would have been upset because they would have heard John is saying, in a weird kind of way, by penning these words, I am writing Bible. I am writing Bible. It's what I do, he says. I'm an apostle. I was there. I write Bible. If I ever say that personally as your pastor, please leave the church. <laughs> if you ever meet a pastor who says that, run. Run away. I don't write Bible. That... Immediate after, and, this, and I can't even go far enough to talk about how this is the only way this project's going to make sense. This is the only way we're going to be able to move is with an unshakable conviction that will not be, uh, will not be shaken that we have in our possession the Word of God. Now, I want you to catch this. The way he grabs the Old Testament there and the way he then calls the Word, calls Jesus the Word, is tantamount to saying, you reject, if you have not read Leviticus, it's because you don't love Jesus. I'm serious. If you're not in, your, in the words, because you don't really care. You don't care to know him. The word of God is unshakably true and eternal. And in fact, the sun and the moon and the stars and the galaxies will fade. And time itself will collapse into a ruin before even a comma has changed in the word of God. That's the way he's thinking. Because he locks word in eternity. And he's saying that his words reach and describe, reach and apply, reach and bring to us eternal things. And, and words aren't eternal, <laughs> they're finite little things. And that's how eternity is brought into the world now. That's the way it's always been brought. Don't you know? And, and there's so many things the Greeks wouldn't have known. Well, when he starts talking like this, in the beginning was the word. And the... Uh, you can imagine a, a Jew going, how was light created? How were the planets created? How were animals created? How was man created? And God said, let there be light. And they would have been stunned to realize that he, John's claim about Jesus, John's claim about word, because he's claiming the word is life-giving and powerful. He's claiming the word is living and active. He's claiming the word's eternal. He's claiming the word of God is necessary to do this project. You see, so often, people who want to, let's say, reach San Francisco, we want to reach this generation for Christ. 
I meet people like this all the time, and I'm glad for them. I'm glad for the spirit and the heart that wants to reach people for Christ. But if you move down that project of being applicable to San Francisco, let's say, or if we're going to engage in the great project, and believe me, it's going to take us years to do it. It takes time. We can only do it with both feet <laughs> planted in an unshakable conviction about the word of God. Otherwise, what happens? Let's say you just have one foot in. Maybe you have one foot on the edge, John. And then you try to, you try to be, uh, you try to be uh, relevant. And as you're buffeted by, tom, by, by church planting, let's say, and you want a bigger church, let's say, or something like that, and the, it's buffeting you, you gotta put the other foot down, right? And you're gonna put it down wherever, it's, wherever, wherever you are, you're gonna put it down. Right? And maybe it'll be about sexuality. Maybe it'll be about uh, prosperity. Maybe it'll, who knows? Doesn't matter. All those errors all look the same. They're all rejections of the eternal word of God. Let me, let me warn you. There is in your heart, my dear sister, and in my heart, there is an active agency in the world on Discovery Channel even. There's an active agent in the world that seeks to discredit the word of God. And it has always been like this. It has always been like this. All error always starts here. And it always starts with this way. And our enemy knows this. And the two times that Satan talks most clearly and most vividly in the Bible, the two times he speaks most vividly, he plays with the word of God. Both times. Hey, Eve, did God really say you must not touch any part of any plant in the garden? That's not what God said. It's a misquote, but it almost sounds like what he said. Did he really? Are you, did it really, is that really wrong? Boy, can you hear the echo of that? By the way, when he, the other time is when he talks to Jesus. And what does he, what does he use with Jesus? When Satan tempts Jesus, what does he use? The word of God. Okay, casting doubt. Some doubt on him. What if you jump yourself off this building? Will you really survive? Does he really care and his promise is really secure? Why don't you test him? Are you sure? Are you sure? Can you hear that whisper in your heart? Do I really know this is true? Is the Bible just, how do I? No, I'm not gonna go into all the time required, but let me vindicate the book of John. Written last of all the books in the New Testament probably. We have the earliest copies in fragments. While, as one great academic put it, we can guarantee <laughs> that these copies we found of John, the original was barely dry. <laughs> John had barely, the original that he had written was barely dry. And there are copies already. This reaches so far into antiquity, it blew apart an entire academic school dedicated to proving how Christianity is the creation of an evolutionary search for God across a lot of time, and a lot of people get gullible. And to discover that, that, that the manuscripts penetrate all the way back to the original witnesses. Look, I got so many stories like that I can share you and encourage you with. The Bible is the word of God. And its beauty and its value is guaranteed. Why? Because it delivers to us Jesus Christ. <laughs> it does. He is the Word. He is the Word. 
Now, I, I stop over this first part in order to establish it and, and, to, and, to, uh, and to put it out in front of us so we can go forward. Uh, this is about Jesus and for Jesus. It's the way he understands the word. If, if you read, you don't read Christ just for a little while, he'll tell you. And he said it again and again. When he would quote the Old Testament, you know what he would say? As the Holy Spirit says. I love that. Yeah, his conviction itself was that this was the word of God. That's John's conviction. So in order to move forward, in order to present the gospel in a language that is going to be accessible, we have to start with that conviction or we will get lost. We will get shipwrecked along the way. We will. Second, there's only two points for me. Be happy to know. We need to not only be convinced to be a people of the word, we must be a people of translation. And when I say translation, I mean evangelism as a form of translation. Um, uh, translation. Uh, I was uh, thinking about this uh, this morning about how we communicate. Um, Christianese has to go. Uh, when we use lingo that people don't understand, when we use lingo that people don't understand is our private lingo. Uh, we have to understand that's not loving. It's not an act of love. That's an act of, of, of uh, clubbishness, right? It's an act of our, uh, for our safety and comfort. Uh, jargon is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, you, you, every one of you has a workplace where you have a particular jargon. And you know you see people come in and they've got to master the jargon to get there. And you can always tell when somebody's new because they don't know the jargon. And you, and you have to bring them up. And that is not the way the, that the world doesn't care. If you, they want, you, have, you have to learn a whole bunch of things in order to be able to understand your own job. I don't think the church should be like that. That is not a hospitality or a loving act. But instead, I want us, and this is going to be an effort, guys. How do we describe prayer then? Because this prayer maybe is easier. Uh, how should we describe uh, in, uh, inerrancy or, or other ab more abstract ideas? Uh, uh, salvation. Salvation is not a word this culture uses. It has no comprehension of that word. So don't use it. Like, yeah, work hard. And this is the work gets hard right here because we are so used to hackneyed ways and trite phrases and, and things we're very familiar with. We're so easy with the shortcut that we have emptied in our mind the meaning of it. And, but this is where it's really a blessing. If you start doing the work of translation, you will open up your own heart to God's truth. Because there's a lot of things, like I'm a pastor, I can read the original, so what? Let me tell you something, you know what I do? I smuggle in my own conviction, I smuggle in my own attitudes all the time. And I'll be sitting there translating the text, and I'll go, oh, <laughs> I'll see a new, the revelation come on, that I and my Christianese has blinded me to the depths of it, to, to the glories of it, to, to, the, to how endless and beautiful and magnificent it is, how, how immediate it is, how, you know, it, it blinded me from it. It removes us. Christianese is not only a crime against the people who come here seeking God and making it harder and harder for them to jump hurdle after hurdle to understand what the heck we're doing, that's one, but it also blocks us. <laughs> It also blocks us from understanding because our understanding itself is so weak that we don't even know how to do the work of translation. It's going to hurt. I say it hurts because it's not comfortable. <laughs> What's a good word for salvation? Rescue? That's one I use a lot. Rescue? <laughs> God came to rescue us. We know what rescue is. And we can go on from there. 
I want you to work to get that. Second, part of translation, uh, you have, your awareness has to grow. Um, obviously, there's a, maybe you don't feel any urgency about communicating your faith and, and how people don't understand it. Well, that just tells me you're not around a lot of pagans then. <laughs> you're not talking to them about Jesus. <laughs> Because if you start doing that, that's what you want to be. In other words, we're not asked, we're not in there. And one of the ways we need to be in there is by questions and, and really getting to know what people really think and honoring what they think as a valuable thing for us to understand. Why? Because John must have read Philo. John, John must, his heart, he must have been hearing these words thinking, how can I use this to tell people about Jesus? I knew him. How can I tell this great, this culture? Oh, wait a second. They talk about the RK, this Logos. I love it. John was immersed in a loving connection with people so that he knew what they needed. He stood firm in the Word of God, unshakably, from Genesis all the way to John at this point. The only way he can do that, the only way he could do the work of translation was by starting there in that conviction. Uh, but uh, let's keep going here. Translation only comes with hard work. I already said that. Um, uh, look for and when I say hard work look for the hidden things there are hidden things we think there are hidden things we don't we just can't remember how hard it is to understand do you, do you know what I mean we forget how mystifying it is um, just the fact that we believe in a book that doesn't make any mistakes that's nuts we're saying we have data that's not corruptible we have incorruptible data. But that's a better way of saying it, isn't it? Just talking about it as data. We have incorruptible data. There, you're already, you're beginning to use, and we don't, we shouldn't use the word works. I don't use, I don't like using the word word or Bible or scripture. I'd rather use text or something, I like, or writings. Something that just at least doesn't, it as a word, just sound like something kind of spiritual. <laughs> you know, isn't it funny? Aren't a lot of us deluded into adopting the jargon because we know if we use the jargon well, people think we're smart? Come on. I want at least one hand for this. Thank you, Adele. Anybody else? There you go. Come on. Yeah, this, yeah, it's like, yeah, well, I'm in the know. Yeah. <laughs> Sovereignty, inerrancy, <laughs> inspiration. <laughs> uh, what if someone was someone oh, Are you an infralapsarian or a supralapsarian? See, I got you all. I've got the secret knowledge, and I'm not sharing that one. <laughs> Um, as we discover this, we have to, there's two equal parts in this process of discovery. You discover how to tell them of his love, and that's his process. Um, I love this, and I came across this, and I thought about doing it on our website, I'm not sure, but uh, a wonderfully captivating way that somebody was describing the church and its, its sacraments, for example. We just did baptism, right? And so we did baptism, and we're going to do communion right here at the table. And we read from a book. So they, they talked about the church being all about food, book, bath, and table. Isn't that great? You can reduce our entire religion and its practice side to what? Book, bath, and table. Isn't that kind of refreshing? Even for us, we know these things is refreshing. Because it reconnects us because we're a part of this culture too. And we're trying to live between being a Christian and being a San Franciscan. And they don't mix very well, do they? They're like oil and water. 
So, uh, so discovering that, it can be a, a wonderful journey. So I'm gonna invite you, start reading these bulletins and help me. I would invite every one of you, and I'm saying this with Megan in the room, because I'm gonna get a, a, a red, so much red is gonna be on my bulletin after she goes through it, I'll probably barely be able to read it. I need your grammar skills and your translation skills. If there's things that are being said in that, in that document that are not clear or well said, or uh, are just jargon, then tell me. So why, I don't wanna, I, I have blind spots too, you know? I have blind spots too. We can be in a process of discovery about how to say the things we love and do, talk about God's love in a way that invites and connects. Um, one of the most powerful images of our time is the idea of sacrifice. Big thing is to look on value. What are you willing to sacrifice and give up for what you want? Serious? You know, ripe ideas are available that we can use. And that's this process of love. But let me, let me share something else with you. Remember what I said? Both feet in the Bible? Well, you know what a part of translation is? Figuring out how to offend this generation and not being afraid to do it. I have known a lot of men, and I say this to my shame, and I've, I've, I've actually confronted some of them about it, who would say, all of our work is to figure out how to tell people more about God's love. Amen! That's at least half the work. What's the other half? To learn how to tell people things they don't want to hear. And not tell them things in a language they can't understand. You, you, the only way you're really going to tick off San Francisco, because San Francisco generally doesn't care there's a bunch of churches here. They don't care. And it's mostly because I think we're all locked up in our Christianese enough that they don't really get what we really mean, <laughs> if they really mean that at all. John does this. Oh, yeah, John does this. <laughs> Hebrew, Greek, Hebrew, Hebrew, Greek philosopher, Greek, Hebrew philosophers. Word, light. Oh, this is so cool. John's kind of hip. I'm intrigued. And then he says 14. And verse 14 is like a bolt out of the blue. It's offensive. The word became flesh. John knows that 99% of the Greek philosophers will go, oh, you gotta be kidding me. If we're doing the work of translation and we're not prepared to deliver the offense, now, the first 13 verses are all about God's love in the world. I'm not saying we, we lead with, hey, you know, you're, you're going to hell. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, I said, my dad came to Christ after a pastor spent three months in Bible study with him before he told my dad, look, you know, you are going to hell. I said, but anyway, so my dad, my, my, dad, my dad needed to hear that. My dad and I are very similar. If you want to say something to me, you got to be super, super, super clear because it's, it's some sort of congenital stupidity. I can't, I really can't. It's, it's so frustrating. Um, it's so frustrating. Um, a good friend of mine right now is just, uh, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. But to deliver the, the second message, at the appropriate time, he waits, he draws them in, and then, if we're gonna translate for San Francisco into our culture, we have to figure out what that message is. I suspect it's somewhere along the lines that men and women are depraved, are 
Their ruin is so complete, no technology or biology will ever, will ever heal it. So we need to ask these kind of questions. We need to ask these, discover these kinds of things and, and do it. And in this way, what I hope is that we'll together, we will become like the sacraments. I really mean this. And we'll heal some of the cognitive dissonance in our own lives. Some of the ways in which, do you ever feel like in the, between you and the world, there's just this weird kind of dissonance, like this doesn't fit ever. And, you're just, and, you're, and you, sometimes you're living like, a two, like two different people. Anybody else like this and all? And I don't even have to live in the world like we do. You don't have to go to a job like you guys do. I don't have to live as well like that nose to nose. But it creates this weird dissonance. But uh, what am I hoping then? Um, Calvin said that in the table, uh, Jesus lisps, God lisps. And what he means is he talks baby talk. He talks baby talk. That's, kind of, that's translation, isn't it? What's Jesus always doing? Jesus is the eternal son of God talking to chumps like Peter. And this Peter too. <laughs> right? How do you communicate with a chump like Peter and this Peter too? <laughs> How do you do it? Sometimes you get the best way of baby talk. Jesus has a body. And Jesus had blood in his body because he was a real man. He died on the cross. And when he dies, his blood, his blood's poured out and his body is hurt. But that pouring out that hurt, all of that hurt that was on him, that, all that, that was punishment that was I should have had. That was a prison. That was an electric chair that I should have been sitting in. But instead, he took my place. And if I put my heart in him and trust him, and if I turn to him, because he's now eternal, he's eternal, he's always been eternal. That, that's, that, that punishment, that electric chair that he sat on called the cross, he frees me from judgment. Frees me. I, I'm no longer a bad person. Because Jesus loves me. That's baby. Do I spill? Yeah. That's baby talk. Uh, do you see how, I want you to become like the table. See how eager God is? This is, in the simple mind can understand this. So, Jesus was not afraid from, afraid to give the most simple explanations. Why? Because he really loves us. And if you really love your neighbor, the coworker, parents, family, one another, you're going to do the same work that John is inviting us into. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for condescending. For just coming down, for coming down, for sending your son. I, John is talking about stuff we, our minds can barely get around, Father. Uh, how was the word in the beginning? Well, look at that. All this the eternity, all this. I pray that you will keep talking, baby, talk to me as your son and to us. And let, Would you open up all these treasures for us? So that we in turn, not so we can enjoy the treasures of your love for ourselves, but so that we can tell other people too. And we can start this, this program that John started. We can start this project of really 
of being present with people, speaking their language, unshakably convinced that we have the word of a God. We pray for new boldness and new Holy Spirit presence. Pray for new wisdom, new, new, uh, new boldness for the adventure that's before us. We pray for San Francisco, and we pray that you, for our city, you would do this act of love of making us as a church a place of transparent, easy to understand love and gospel. Good news for our city. We look to you to create this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And having broken it, he said, this is my body, which is for you, take and eat. And in the same way, uh, he also, after the meal, he took a cup of wine and he poured the wine. And he said, this is the cup of the covenant. This is my blood shed for the, the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Brothers and sisters, this is a table for those who believe. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know who he is, and you're in him, then John's purposes have been achieved in you already. That, what was remember his purposes? That you may believe, and in believing, and believe in the Son of God, and believing you may have life. This is your table. This is a table for sinners. This is a table for ruined people, the depressed and the lonely and the afraid, the people who were abused and have abused. Our Savior came to love us all. Divorced. Ruined. Alone. Yes. Okay, but if you don't believe, would you just watch us? And would you watch us in your un I, I, unbelief? I, I understand that. I, I want you to watch us and watch this ritual and, and ask this God if he's real to reveal himself to you. Would you do that? But finally, this is the harshest word I'll say today about this. So that I'm categorically understood. The Bible does have very, very strong words against people who think they're good. Jesus is very, very tender with people who say they don't know anything. He's extraordinarily tender with people who don't, who don't, uh, who are ruined and, and weak and afraid. But if you think you're a good man, if you think you're a good woman, or even worse, if you think you know something, <laughs> we'll talk about that later in John. Uh, if you have that presumption, that, that arrogance and conceit, and you don't know yourself to be a sinner, this table, you're not worthy of this table. This table was made for broken people, not for good people. So let's celebrate it together. I, uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to read the Nicene Creed together. That is, that it is, by the way, the, this creed is, you are, if you assent to the facts of this creed and, and its statements, this table is yours. We're going to read the Nicene Creed together as our statement of faith. After we're done, we're going to sing a song. And while we're singing a song, Will you come forward and get the elements and take them back to your seat? And then after we're done with the song, we'll eat and drink together and bless, or bless ourselves and get the heck out of here. All right? Um, would you please stand? Uh, First Presbyterian Church, uh, please, uh, brothers and sisters, guests, whoever's here, tell me, what, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in things visible and invisible, 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, and was made man, was also crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and died. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We, we believe one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Amen.